as it says up there. We just got done with Christmas. And it kind of struck me, this is the time we celebrate Jesus, the Son of God, historically coming into the world. Okay, So there were people who lived at that time who were contemporaries of Jesus who knew him. And I'm thinking about the Apostle John when he writes in the very beginning of his first epistle. He says, this is about the word of life, whom we saw and touched and handled. And the language implies that we're still beholding him. We're still touching him. We were with him. So the birth of Jesus is a historical event. His death was historical. His rising from the dead was historical. And his Coming back is a historical event that will happen. And I'm more and more aware that I should be expecting Jesus to come back, even in my lifetime. And what I want to do is show you some of these scriptures that make me think this. And you know, what I'm saying here is I don't want to whip anybody up into an end times frenzy. And there's a lot of that going on. And I watched a video yesterday. A friend of mine sent it to me. And the guy was giving his view of the rapture and when's it going to happen and all that stuff. And he says, you know what? I'm sick to death of this. Anybody who sets a date I know is already wrong. So he says, as we get closer to 2033, exactly 2,000 years after Jesus died and rose again, we're going to see predictions go off the scale. He says, we're going to see a lot of this junk. And I don't want to be like that. So I'm not setting a date for Jesus to return. But I am very aware of God-fulfilling prophecies in our lifetime. And that's what I want us to be aware about. And you know, the, the fact that the prophecies were made a long time ago can sort of give the impression, well, you know, whenever. So... We want to look at some things that are happening now to keep this in mind. Jesus is going to come back. And I have here, I might live to see it, but actually I am going to live to see it. You know, the dead in Christ will rise first. And then we who are alive will be caught up into the clouds to meet him. So this is something that does affect every one of us in our lifetime. And to know that Jesus is coming back and that it might be in our lifetime 
unless we slip on a cake of soap in the shower and die. But if that doesn't happen, and this morning it didn't happen to me, so I feel pretty good about that, you know, at some point, God could fulfill these things in our lifetime. We will see these things happen. So, I want to live rightly for him right now. I want to be ready when he comes back. That is the whole point. Okay? So, first, what I want to do is sketch briefly an overview of the last day's scenario from the Bible. And I wanted to start with Daniel 9, because this is sort of the broad sketch of what God is doing. And we, we looked at this on Friday night. The whole thing is up on YouTube, and you can fill in some of the gaps that I'm not going to address here. But this is what it says. This is the message from the angel Gabriel to Daniel in response to his prayer of confession. He says, 70 weeks have been decreed for your people and your holy city to finish the transgression, to make an end of sin, to make atonement for iniquity, to bring in everlasting righteousness, to seal up vision and prophecy, and to anoint the most holy place. And one of the things we noticed is this is fulfilling everything. When you're talking about things like to make an end of sin, you think, really? No more sin. That is a finality. Or... Um, to finish the transgression, like we're done with sin. We're talking about a major change or to anoint the most holy place. All right? So we're talking about God fulfilling his eternal plan. This is big stuff. So he says, so you are to know and discern that from the issuing of a decree to restore and rebuild Jerusalem until Messiah the Prince, there will be seven weeks and 62 weeks. Now, this is a holdover from the King James translators. This word weeks is a translation of a Hebrew word that means seven. And it's like the English word dozen. A dozen only means 12 of something. It doesn't tell you what. So the phrase here is 77s. And we looked at the fact that, is it 77s of days, months, years? And we noticed that it refers to years. And the entire prophecy is 490 years. That's what God said. So from the issuing of decree, 
there will be seven and 62. And in our advanced math on Friday evening, we got the total 69 till Messiah the Prince. Now, this is, will be war. Desolations are determined. Now, Jerusalem was destroyed in the year 70. Uh, the prophecy about Messiah was fulfilled when Jesus rode into Jerusalem on a donkey. And you can, this one gentleman named Sir Robert Anderson worked out that from the decree which was given in the year 444 by Artaxerxes, it's in Nehemiah chapter 2, till Jesus riding in to Jerusalem is exactly 483 years. which is 69 times 7. So what we noticed is that all the prophecy right down to that sentence is fulfilled. And because of our advanced mathematics, we worked out that that is 99% of the time set by God. There's only 1% left. And there is one seven-year period that has not happened yet. It's like the clock stopped, and there's a huge gap in time, roughly the last 2,000 years. But if 99% of this time period is fulfilled, this last 1% must happen or God is a liar. Does everybody get that? So when we pick it up, it says, and he will make a firm covenant with the many for one week. But in the middle of the week, he will put a stop to sacrifice and grain offering. And on the wing of abominations will come one who makes desolate, even until a complete destruction, one that is decreed, is poured out on the one who makes desolate. All right? He refers back to this prince who is to come. Now, the people of the prince destroyed Jerusalem. They're the Romans. So evidently, this fellow who's coming will come from that group of people. And there's going to be a, a, a covenant. It's going to last seven years. And in the middle of the week, that's three and a half years, he'll put a stop to sacrificing grain offering, which is interesting because you can't do that without a temple. And then he's going to make an abomination that makes desolate. Okay, so we've noticed the total is 490 years. 69 of those sevens, 483 years, have already happened. But the last seven years have not happened yet. Now, during these last seven years, this prince will come and 
make a peace treaty. Three and a half years into that, he causes the abomination that makes desolate, leading to what is known as the Great Tribulation. The time that Jesus said would be the most disturbing, terrifying time there would ever be. That's in Matthew chapter 24. For then there will be a great tribulation such as not occurred since the beginning of the world until now, nor ever will. Unless those days had been cut short, no life would have been saved. But for the sake of the elect, those days will be cut short. Okay, so you think about the worst things that have ever happened on the planet. And you can even throw in World War II, nuclear bombs, death camps. This is worse than all of it put together. And he says, there's never been anything so bad. There will never be again that you not be quickly shaken from your composure or be disturbed either by a spirit or a message or a letter as if from us to the effect that the day of the Lord has come. That is the end. Let no one in any way deceive you for it will not come unless the apostasy comes first and the man of lawlessness is revealed, the son of destruction who opposes and exalts himself above every so-called God or object of worship so that he takes his seat in the temple of God, displaying himself as being God. Now, Paul is describing this chap up here in Daniel chapter 9. He He is the one who makes desolate, all right? And here's how he makes it desolate. He takes his seat in the temple of God. And he says, I am God. That's an abomination that makes desolate. So... In Revelation chapter 13, it was given to him to give breath to the image of the beast so that the image of the beast would even speak and cause as many as do not worship the image of the beast to be killed. Now, here, beast, uh, man of lawlessness, son of destruction, prince who is coming, all refer to the same guy. I just kind of scribbled him out there, didn't I? Sorry. Now, what I want to emphasize here is this seven years that's coming and this great tribulation is really all about the nation of Israel. This is a Jewish prophecy in Daniel 9. It refers to a Jewish nation Israel, it's about, it's about primarily Israel. In Jeremiah chapter 30, it says, Alas, for that day is great, there is none like it, 
And it is the time of Jacob's distress, but he will be saved from it. It shall come about on that day, declares the Lord of hosts, that I will break his yoke from off their neck and will tear off their bonds, and strangers will no longer make them their slaves. But they shall serve the Lord their God, and David their king, whom I will raise up for them. Now, you know, resurrection happens when Jesus comes back. And this great tribulation result will result in Israel being saved and Jesus returning to the earth and resurrection and the blessing, all that stuff. But it comes out of Jacob's distress and there is no time like it. Exactly what Jesus said, this will be the worst time ever in history. And right here, Jeremiah says, that day is great. There is none like it. And it is the time of Jacob's distress. Now listen, a lot of people are going to be put out by this day. It's going to be horrific. But it's about Jacob. It's about Israel. That's something to keep in mind about this. So, in Zechariah now, chapter 12, God says, I will pour out on the house of David and on the inhabitants of Jerusalem the spirit of grace and of supplication so that they will look on me whom they have pierced and they will mourn for him as one mourns for an only son and they will weep bitterly over him like the bitter weeping over a firstborn. Now, I think this is remarkable, that the Lord is which you now see and hear. So, this is Jesus speaking in the Old Testament. I will pour out the Spirit of grace on the house of David, on the inhabitants of Jerusalem, they will look on me, whom they have pierced. And you know, it says in Revelation chapter 1, that every eye will see him, all the tribes of the earth will mourn when they see him. Nobody's going to go, hey, this is great, here comes Jesus like we would. I would be super-duper happy if I saw Jesus coming. But all the tribes on the earth will mourn when they see him coming. So here's this element of mourning, like somebody died, sorrow. Why wouldn't anybody on the planet be happy about Jesus coming back? And the answer is, everybody who's going to be happy about Jesus coming back to the earth are riding on white horses behind Jesus, and they're not in front of him. Now, that's a whole other message we're not going to get into. But just think about this. The Jews are going to mourn, and everybody else on the planet is going to mourn. This is going to be a very 
difficult, horrific time that's coming. So, in conclusion, the great tribulation that's coming is about God bringing the nation of Israel to submit to him and to receive Jesus, their Messiah, whom they rejected. That's why they're going to be mourning. Messiah came, and we totally missed him, and we've been rejecting him for this long, and we have blown it so badly. We are so wrong. And as we noticed this morning, it's really remarkable when a person actually comes to the point where they say, I'm sorry. Something you never thought would happen about this person that gives you hope when they can say, I'm sorry. And see, this is what's going to happen. The entire nation of Israel is going to say to God, I am so sorry. I am so sorry. So that's why I say here that Israel is who you got to watch about everything that's happening about the last days. The nation Israel is so important. And the reason is, it's a phenomenon that's been an unfolding for the last 150 years of history. So in the mid-1800s, you have this phenomena of Jews wanting to live in what was then called Palestine. And it's this continuing stream of natives and immigrants who begin to build settlements and the very first settlement that was built in Israel failed. They couldn't beat the marshes that caused malaria. And they squabbled. And crops were crummy. And it didn't work. But for all that, they didn't stop. And somebody else started another settlement. And it has always been a big job reclaiming land, making it fertile. But then you got this phenomenon with Theodor Herzl from Hungary. And he's saying there has got to be a national homeland. And he had a conference in Basel, Switzerland in 1897. Something like the British government, the Balfour Declaration of 1917, while World War I is still in progress, endorsing the establishment of a national home for the Jewish people. The British government said, in principle, we're behind this. We think it ought to happen, which is amazing. And then after the Second World War in 1947, the United Nations General Assembly voted for the establishment of a Jewish and an Arab state in Palestine. That's what they voted for. They said, okay, let's solve it. Let's have a two-state solution. Let's make this thing happen. 
Britain would remain in Palestine until the moment of transfer, a date not yet decided upon, but no later than the 1st of August, 1948. And then began this conflict because the Arabs were not having it. And they pushed back. And the more that the Jews began to prepare for this eventual two-state eventuality that was approved by the United Nations, the Arabs pushed back and Israel pushed back. And it got to this point where with the withdrawal of Britain imminent, Israel declared statehood. May 14, 1948, in order to defend themselves against attack from five independent Arab states. The very day that they declared statehood, it was because of national emergency, that's when the Arabs were attacking because that was the day England was leaving. Now, the Arabs have never accepted the offer of their own state in Palestine. Never. It's been offered to them over and over and over and over again. But Israel has won every war against them. This is something to really marvel at. Israel has won every war because they have to. If they lose, they will be destroyed, annihilated, genocide. It's really not about territory or land. It's about existence. That's why you'll read in the news occasionally about the existential threat. It's not a matter of philosophy. It's a matter about living. If Israel doesn't win any war that it gets into, they're going to be wiped out. So, the next thing we want to look at is this. Prophecy about the restoration of Israel has two parts, physical and spiritual. This is Ezekiel chapter 37. The hand of the Lord was upon me, and he brought me out by the Spirit of the Lord and set me down in the middle of the valley, and it was full of bones. He caused me to pass among them round about, and behold, there were very many on the surface of the valley, and lo, these were very dry. He said to me, Son of man, can these bones live? And I answered, O Lord God, you know. Again he said to me, Prophesy of these bones, and say to them, O dry bones, hear the word of the Lord. Thus says the Lord God to these bones, Behold, I will cause breath to enter you, that you may come to life. I will put sinews on you, make flesh grow back on you, cover you with skin, and put breath in you, that you may come alive, and you will know that I am the Lord. So I prophesied as I was commanded. So here's, here's Ezekiel in a valley of bones, and they're not stacked neatly. Clavicles over here, but femurs here. It's just a mess. 
And they're dry, which means they've been dead a long time. And it's just piles of bones. Do you think this looked a little bit spoopy? It's like, wow, God, this is a little bit weird. Strange. Ezekiel, prophesy to the breath. Prophesy, son of men, and say to the breath, thus says the Lord God, come from the four winds, O breath, and breathe on these slain that they come to life. So I prophesied as he commanded me, and the breath came into them, and they came to life and stood on their feet, an exceedingly great army. So God says, prophesy to these bones, and they become, they come together again, but evidently all these bodies are still lying on the ground. They're all together again physically, but they're not alive. Now, that must have been weird. And God says, okay, now tell the breath to enter them. Now, in, in Hebrew, breath, wind, spirit are all described by the same word, ruach. And so he's saying, tell the spirit to come into these. And see, then they came to life and stood on their feet. An exceedingly great army. That's not an accident there. Ezekiel 37, Then he said to me, Son of man, these bones are the whole house of Israel. Behold, they say our bones are dried up and our hope is perished. We are completely cut off. Therefore prophesy and say to them, Thus says the Lord God, Behold, I will open your graves and cause you to come up out of your graves, my people, and I will bring you into the land of Israel. Then you will know that I am the Lord, when I have opened your graves and caused you to come up out of your graves, my people. I will put my spirit within you, and you will come to life, and I will place you on your own land. Then you will know that I, the Lord, have spoken and done it, declares the Lord. Now, remember who is the one who pours out the spirit of God? Jesus. They are his people. I will place you within your own land. Has this happened? You know, I was reading this history of Israel that I have yesterday, and they were thinking, what should we call our nation? And they had a bunch of names that they were kind of kicking around and thinking, what do we call ourselves? It wasn't an automatic no-brainer. But it was David Ben-Gurion who said, no, 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 no. We are Israel. There is nothing else. And as soon as they proclaimed the name of the state of Israel, everybody got it. There is no other name. We are Israel. And so look at this. The first part of Ezekiel 37 is fulfilled. They're back in the land, they are a nation, and they're physically in existence. But the second part has not been fulfilled yet. And 
God is going to bring Israel to himself spiritually during the last seven-year period prophesied in Daniel 9. That's the mechanism. That's the process. Here's what I want to notice. This present war in Israel is different from all the other wars Israel has fought in the past, at least that I can see. And one of those things is the way it's drawing in the other nations. U.S. bases in the Middle East are being attacked. Russia is being drawn in. Syria, Lebanon, Qatar, Yemen, Iraq, Turkey, and there's more. And I noticed that because it's like the situation in Ezekiel 38, which happens just after 37. And the word of the Lord came to me saying, Son of man, set your face toward Gog of the land of Magog, the prince of Rosh, Meshach, and Tubal, and prophesy against him and say, Thus says the Lord God, Behold, I am against you, O bulls, with you. Be prepared and prepare yourself, you and all your companies that are assembled about you, and be a guard for them. After many days, you will be summoned. In the latter years, you will come into the land that is restored from the sword, whose inhabitants have been gathered from many nations to the mountains of Israel, which had been a continual waste, but its people were brought out from the nations, and they are living securely, all of them. You will go up. You will come like a storm. You will be like a cloud covering the land, you and all your troops, and many peoples with you. All right? Who are these guys? Well, Rosh has been identified with Russia. All these countries are around that area, the stands. That's not talking about a guy named Stan. That's Kazakhstan, Afghanistan, a bunch of stands. And then you've got Persia, known today as Iran. Ethiopia and Put, these are northern African nations. And if you ever see a map of the Middle East and who's who and what's what, you'll, you'll see this little tiny uh, little country postage stamp called Israel and everything else around it. Africa, Turkey, Iran, Iraq, everybody else is surrounding Israel. So Gomer turns out to be Germany, and you have the EU involved, many peoples. And notice, this is about this country Israel, whose inhabitants have been gathered from many nations to the mountains of Israel. Now see, this has already happened in this prophecy. And he says, you're going to go up. You're going to come like a storm. Okay. We also see this in Zechariah chapter 12. The burden of the word of the Lord concerning Israel. Yahoo. 
Thus declares the Lord who stretches out the heavens, lays the foundation of the earth, and forms the spirit of man within him. Behold, I am going to make Jerusalem a cup that causes reeling to all the peoples around. And when the siege is against Jerusalem, it will also be against Judah. It will come about in that day that I will make Jerusalem a heavy stone for all the peoples. All who lift it will be severely injured, and all the nations of the earth will be gathered against it. Now, I don't know why you'd want to lift a heavy rock. Maybe to get rid of it. Maybe you think, you know, this rock is in our way. We need to make progress. We'd make better progress without this rock in our way. So they're going to say, we're people. We can move rocks. Let's move this rock. Let's have a solution. God says, you try to lift this rock, you're going to hurt yourself. All who lift it will be severely injured. Let's not scribble over our text. Let's go like that. Now, the interesting thing is, again, it's happening in our day. And what I notice is, with this particular conflict, there doesn't seem to be a way to end it. And we've seen how Israel would cease fire in order to recover the hostages. But Hamas will not stop. They, they did some transfer of hostages. But Hamas broke its own truce. Now, you know, they do a truce, a ceasefire, in order to gain time to recover. Here's Israel as a result of the massacre on October 7, moving through Gaza, systematically destroying terrorist infrastructure. Hamas is on the run. What do they do? Pull out the hostage card to slow things down so they can re- So, you know, you've got some people who are still singing the song about, let's just get two states together and we're done, right? So there'd be a Palestinian state and an Israeli state. And the people who push for that totally miss the point. Not once ever have the Arabs, the Palestinians, ever accepted a two-state solution because they don't want peace. They never wanted their own state. They just don't want Israel. Okay? Now, they had their own state. They had Gaza all to themselves. And what we're finding is they took all the money they get from Qatar and from Saudi Arabia and all these places, and they build a tunnel system bigger than the London Underground. And they use it to attack Israel. They have it under hospitals, schools, kids' centers. So the takeaway from this is that there is no possible way for Israel to go back to Gaza the way it was. What are they going to do if they let the Palestinians have Gaza again? They're just going to build it up as a platform to attack Israel. See, that's unacceptable. And they've proven that this is a dead end. 
But there's more. Iran is pushing for a nuclear weapon, and the U.S. is allowing them to get it. This is crazy. This is crazy. But you know, not only do they want a nuclear weapon, they're going to use it. Now that's insane. But see, once, once you let the nuclear bomb out of the bag, there's no getting it back. And I think you could make a good case for saying that one aspect of these horrific days in the Great Tribulation is nuclear warfare. You know, there are tens of thousands of nuclear weapons in existence right now. And it only takes one nuclear bomb to ruin your whole day. What's going to happen if they fire 10,000 of them? In Revelation 16, when the final bowl of wrath of God is poured out, it says there's flashes, explosions, earthquakes. It says all the mountains and islands flee away and are not found. And it says blocks of ice weighing over 100 pounds, drop from the sky. And I think, now why would you bomb a mountain? Maybe it's because that's where all the leaders of the world put their nuclear bunkers. I don't know. I don't know where they are. Maybe you could Google for it. I would bet you 5P, everybody knows where everybody's hidden. And if one nuclear bomb wouldn't blow that up, why not five? Why not ten? And maybe that's why the mountains flee away. Islands? Well, maybe on this island I can duck it all and I'll get away from this destruction that's coming. No, you won't. We're going to nuke all the islands. And see, when you drop a bomb and the atmosphere is rocketed up, super-cooled. It comes down as blocks of ice. Now, if you're doing this all over the world and you're blowing the atmosphere out, it's all condensing and coming down as 100-pound blocks of ice. It's going to rip through buildings like it was paper. It's going to flatten and destroy everything. And I'm reminded of a scripture in Isaiah it calls it the day of the tall towers falling. They have to intervene before all life is destroyed. See? Those days are cut short because Jesus is going to come back right on time. Now, the U.S. hasn't stopped this conflict, and the U.N. is not going to stop this conflict in Israel. But if anyone could stop the conflict, he would be hailed as a great peacemaker. And we know from Daniel 9 that a person will appear on the scene as a peacemaker. He's going to make a covenant, a peace treaty. 
that will impress people to say, who can make war against him? He's going to enable Israel to build the temple. Now that's going to be a good trick because it's right next to the Dome of the Rock, the third most holy shrine of Islam. Are the Muslims going to allow the Jewish temple to be built right next door? You would say, over our collective dead body. But somehow this peace treaty will enable the Muslims to say, we're good with that. Because see, this person will sit in that reconstructed temple and say, I am God. And the Jews will know they've been betrayed. This guy is not the Messiah. He's the Antichrist. And this sets the scene for Israel to be saved. Because the Antichrist is going to lead the world to finish off Israel. All the nations of the world will be gathered together against Israel. Can you imagine how lopsided that is? Think again to these maps of the Middle East and this little tiny blue you know, hyphen on its side and surrounded by gobs of red Arab nations. But think, the entire world has gone red, anti-Semitic, and this little staple of blue. That's Israel. Everybody is about to destroy Israel, and they will have no hope except the Messiah, whom they will realize is Jesus, whom they rejected. They will mourn for him as an only son. They will pray for him to save them. And Jesus will return to the earth and save Israel. Look at the similarity in these prophecies. Zechariah 14. Then the Lord will go forth and fight against those nations as when he fights on a day of battle. In that day, his feet will stand on the Mount of Olives which is in front of Jerusalem on the east. And the Mount of Olives will be split in its middle from east to west by a very large valley, so that half of the mountain will move toward the north and the other half toward the south. You will flee by the valley of my mountains, for the valley of the mountains will reach to Azel. Yes, you will flee just as you fled before the earthquake in the days of Uzziah, king of Judah. Then the Lord my God will come, and only all the holy ones with him. Now, this is a prophecy of Jesus' return in Acts chapter 1. After he, Jesus, had said these things, he was lifted up while they were looking on, and a cloud received him out of their sight. And as they were gazing intently into the sky while he was going, behold, two men in white clothing stood beside them. They also said, Men of Galilee, why do you stand looking up into the sky? This Jesus, who has been taken up from you into heaven, will come in just the same way as you have watched him go into heaven. Then they returned to Jerusalem from the mount called Olivet, which is near Jerusalem, a Sabbath day's journey away. Where did Jesus ascend into heaven? From the Mount of Olives. Where is he coming back? the Mount of Olives. Isn't that funny? His feet will stand on the Mount of Olives. I didn't know God had feet. Yes, he does. See, Jesus is the Lord God Almighty. 
and he will stand on the Mount of Olives in just the same way that he left. He will come back visibly, bodily, and when he comes back to the Mount of God, speak to every kind of bird and to every beast of the field. Assemble and come. Gather from every side to my sacrifice, which I'm going to sacrifice for you as a great sacrifice on the mountains of Israel, that you may eat flesh and drink blood. You will eat the flesh of mighty men and drink the blood of the princes of the earth as though they were rams, lambs, goats, and bulls. All right? Now, the point of this is the house of Israel will know that I am the Lord their God from that day onward. Now, you go to Revelation 19. The heavens are opened, Jesus is described, and then it says, I saw an angel standing in the sun, and he cried out with a loud voice, saying to all the birds which fly in mid-heaven, Come, assemble for the great supper of God that you may eat the flesh of kings and the flesh of commanders and the flesh of mighty men and the flesh of horses and those who sit on them and a bunch of people, everybody. You see, it's the same scenario. I saw the beast, Antichrist, man of destruction, son of destruction, and all their armies assembled to make war against him who sat on the horse and against his army. That's me. And I'm finally going to learn how to ride on a horse. This is going to be <laughs> fun. The beast was seized with him, the false prophet who performed the signs in his presence. These two were thrown alive into the lake of fire, which burns with brimstone. The rest were killed with the sword, which came from the mouth of him who sat on the horse and all the birds were filled with their flesh. What was prophesied in Ezekiel 39 is revealed here in Revelation 19. It's going to happen. So what? It's a risky thing to ask, what would you do if you knew that Jesus was coming back in your lifetime? And I say it's risky because this can be a stick to beat people with and say, you're not witnessing enough. You're not doing enough. And I don't want to give that impression. But it's a question to ask yourself, what would I do differently now if I knew that Jesus was going to show up in my lifetime? You really have to give that some thought. And I thought, what would I do? And I say, I want to be found by him doing what I'm supposed to be doing. That's for me. Because this is not the time to lose the plot. You lose the plot because you get tired. Tired of fighting the good fight and serving Jesus. You get tired of this. You think to yourself, you know, I could have an easier life. I could just think about me for a while. Wouldn't that be fun? You see, this is the time when the love of many will grow cold. And that's what part of what makes this time so fearsome. What happens if 
8 billion people on the planet just say, you know what? I'm fed up with this. I'm going to take care of number one. Then you're going to see what we're looking at the beginnings of it right now. Every man after himself, chaos. But you know what? What I'm supposed to be doing is allowing God to love me so that I can love others. I don't have any love in myself. I can only love as I receive love from God. That is the major business of my life. I know that for myself. Because if I don't allow God to love me, I don't care about anybody else. And I've proved this. I don't give a rip about anybody. And I'm a pastor. Isn't that awful? This is ugly. But it's just true. So for me to do what I'm supposed to do right now, my main business is to let God love me and receive that love. And when you get there, it's going to give you the willies. Seriously? I'm going to die. Now, the deal is, Joni has to go first. Because if I go first, she's going to kill me. So as the number of your health issues increase abundantly, you think to yourself, my goodness, I'm going to die. But the part about preparing for this is I'm not looking forward to dying. I'm looking forward to laying hold on eternal life. See, the first thing I'm going to do when I die is look into the face of Jesus and I'm going to be changed into his image. Am I looking forward to that? Well, that would certainly brighten my day today, wouldn't it? Even if it were storming and raining and everything, you know, everything going wrong. Imagine, one look at Jesus. I'm okay with that now. So this is part of what I'm supposed to be doing now. Here's another thing. I have to be aware of all those things that compete for my attention. That is, choked by pleasures and worries in this world. Jesus says, if you let yourself get choked by pleasures and by cares and worries, you're not going to bear fruit. And I find that this stuff creeps into my life and says, you need to be concerned about this. Oh, you would like this. I, I know already, this is how you live. This is for you, man. Yeah, look at that. But that distracts from the main things in life. Do you see that? This is not the time to lose the plot. So I find, for myself, i got to continually refocus. And remember, yeah, not that. That. So about this thing about serving Jesus and not getting weary, the real question in my life, and maybe in your life, 
What does Jesus want? What does Jesus want? And I, I know that what he wants is always bigger than what I want, and it's better, but it demands more. And I want to go easy on myself. I have a large, lazy streak. I don't want to work. I don't want to put out. I don't want to sweat. But I won't regret doing what Jesus wants when he comes back. <laughs> I'll regret not doing it. See? And if I can see that then, that has to affect the way I live my life now. In other words, I need this vision in front of me of Jesus coming back. And I need to look at that as my grid. This is how I view life, is with this reality that it can happen in my life. The very same way that it happened to Simeon, when God told him, you're not going to die before you see the Messiah. And he walked into the temple on a certain day and saw a baby. And he said, yes, now I'm going to die. Because I see your salvation. And I'm not going to die. I'm going to live. So look, let this grip you and think about this. Jesus can come back in your lifetime. And whatever happens in 2024, we are getting closer to that all the time, and nothing can stop it. So let's pray. Thank you, Heavenly Father. Fest is yet to come. that the Holy Spirit of God would enter them and they would know and understand your Messiah. And we pray for that to happen. We pray that you would restore Israel to you spiritually because you said that will be life from the dead. And we're looking forward to that. Your kingdom come. Your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Please make us ready. And we want to ask you this question, each one of us. What do you want me to do? How do you want my life to be? What's this year going to look like? And please do not let me lose the plot. Please keep me in your ways until I stand before you, blameless with great joy. Please do that for all of us. In Jesus' name, amen.